The KSTE Farm Hour is sponsored in part by Allion Herbicide from Bayer. Residual control that goes the distance. Cleaner, longer, Allion. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. Mediterranean fruit flies have been found in Solano County. We'll tell you what you need to know about this destructive pest of over 200 fruits and vegetables. What's the problem with the Sacramento Valley seed bean crop? Why is their germination so spotty? We'll talk with a cooperative extension farm advisor about current research on that dilemma. The time is near for pre-emergent weed control in orchards and vineyards. We'll tell you about one control that provides a unique solution. Details about the upcoming small farm conference in Stockton and a reaction to a recent commentary in the local newspaper about the state of Sacramento County agriculture. All that, crop reports, and a lot more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. Mediterranean fruit fly is back in Solano County. A discovery of five medflies in orange, Asian pears, and quince trees in agricultural areas of the county has led to that quarantine. Local officials are taking it seriously, and they're not delaying action. We're a very ripe area for pests. We grow lots of things here which allow the pests to come and live. That's John Vasquez, Solano County Supervisor. For growers in the area, the only way to receive permission to ship their crops outside the quarantine zone is to have applied the organically acceptable pesticide, Spinosad, four times during a 30-day period. The Ag Alert newspaper reports that one persimmon grower, Dennis Lum, fearing a future quarantine, took that action when he heard of a single medfly discovery in Solano County back in early September. He told the paper that with the completion of the fourth spray, he will be golden and allowed to ship his persimmons outside of the county. It's not known how many other Solano County farmers also face Lum's predicament. Several crops grown in the area had already been harvested prior to the quarantine, including about half of the area's wine grapes. The quarantine is expected to last until spring unless more medflies are trapped, which would result in extending the quarantine. Here's more details about that medfly quarantine in portions of Solano County. It's an 85-square-mile quarantine area in and around the city of Fairfield. It's bordered on the north by Alamo Drive, on the south by Montezuma Slough, on the west by Sassoon Valley Road, and on the east by Travis Air Force Base. Sterile male medflies are being released in the area as part of the eradication effort. In addition, properties within 200 meters of detection sites are being treated with the organic formulation Spinosad, which originally from naturally occurring bacteria in order to remove any mated female medflies and reduce the density of the population. Finally, fruit removal will occur within 100 meters of properties with larval detections or multiple adult detections. This quarantine is going to affect growers, wholesalers, and retailers of susceptible fruit in the area, as well as local residents. Home gardeners are urged to consume homegrown produce on site and not move it from their property in that quarantine area. The medfly is known to target more than 250 types of fruits and vegetables. Damage occurs when the female lays eggs inside the fruit. The eggs hatch into maggots and tunnel through the flesh of the fruit, making it unfit for consumption. While fruit flies and other invasive species that threaten California's crops and natural environment are sometimes detected in ag areas, the vast majority are found in urban areas, as well as suburban communities. The most common pathway for these invasive species to enter our state is by hitchhiking and fruits and vegetables brought back illegally by travelers 
sailors as they return from infested regions of the world. So far, we've had three rounds of negotiations on the North American Free Trade Agreement. Honestly, we've been somewhat disappointed in the first three rounds. But Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue told a Washington audience these NAFTA negotiations are a bit like a championship boxing match, which can go 15 rounds. If you ever watched a boxing match, they circle one another for a while, and I think we've done circling, so we're going to lay some things on the table in this next round. Some really sticky ag issues, such as the Canadian dairy poultry issue, as well as others. There are a few things in Mexico. He said he and others in agriculture are a little anxious about these negotiations because they involve many non-ag issues, and he has told the U.S. negotiating team, We can't help it that U.S. agriculture is the most productive. Just don't use us as a weapon in trade negotiations. In other words, do no harm to what's been a pretty good agreement for most of U.S. agriculture, and he said, although there are some tough issues here. I'm still optimistic, and I believe we can have a successful negotiation. Round four of which starts next Wednesday. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. California is the seventh largest bean producer in the United States. We account for about 5% of the nation's total bean crop. However, the Golden State grows the country's entire dry lima bean crop and about a third of the black-eyed bean crop. But something is happening to recent bean crops here in Northern California. There's been erratic germination as well as seed brittleness at the time of harvest. Well, what's causing these abnormalities? Rachel Long is a UC Cooperative Extension Farm Advisor based in Woodland. She says it might be a combination of factors. So over the past couple of years, uh, there's uh, the, the, the germination of, uh, of bean seed uh, in the field has been uh, like less than what we want. So you just don't get like this really wonderful, perfect stand. And, uh, and we're not sure why, because it's across all classes of beans. So we have, we grow limas and we grow black eyes or cowpeas. We grow garbanzos and then we also grow common beans, like your kidney beans and your black turtles and cranberries. And, and it's just in the last, uh, during the drought, at least the last couple of years that, that, uh, that the uh, germination is just not as high as it should be. So I'm trying to figure out why. So I've got a trial out there with all these different varieties of beans, and then I'm harvesting them at a very high moisture content, so early in the morning, and then a low moisture content, so, you know, on a hot day in the afternoon, and then uh, putting them through a combine and also hand harvesting some and looking to see if maybe the uh, um, when, they're, when they're really dry that they might be becoming brittle and then you put them through a combine and then they get the, sort of some internal damage. That's what I'm looking at for the uh, dry bean production. So it, it's beyond just germination then it's also uh, the end result. Yeah so uh, yeah so I really want to find out and uh, whether or not like when you get a low moisture if the moisture gets too low that uh, that I think some types of beans like kidney beans are then going to be super super sensitive to uh, threshing at harvest. But other beans, like pinto beans, just seem to be much more tolerant of uh, low moisture and threshing at harvest. So they just don't seem to be impacted as much. And so there's studies that are done, have been done in, I'm sorry, in uh, soybeans in the Midwest. Uh, And uh, what they found is during drought years, that is when the uh, crop is uh, produced in years with not enough rainfall, that uh, that you do get higher damage or higher injury to the seed and they just don't germinate as well. And so I think that what's happening is that the, the crop is just drying down too much and uh, and getting to too low, low of a moisture content. And therefore, then when, the, when it's harvested with a combine, that uh, that you might get some damage. But I think it goes beyond that, too. And I think 
you know, we have newer um, equipment, newer harvesting equipment that goes faster. And uh, and the old equipment just used to, you know, the harvester used to lumber along at, I don't know, 10 miles an hour harvesting the beans. And so it was very slow. Whereas the newer harvesters are faster. Maybe you're going at 15 or 20 miles an hour. And so because it's going faster, it's just not as gentle, uh, perhaps, on the beans as, as the older uh, machines. So anyways, that's a project that I'm working on that uh, that I really hope to uh, to find some answers to to bring us back to a level of uh, of really good germination, which is where we should be. Long says her study may take another two years to complete. Here's this week's California crop report. Alfalfa fields continue to be cut and baled. Sorghum fields are being harvested. Corn silage continues to be harvested as well. Cotton bowls continue to develop. Fields are being defoliated and having borders knocked down in preparation for harvest. Black-eyed beans continue in their harvest stage. Stone fruit harvest is slowing down as the season draws to a close. Gypsum and potash were applied to harvested stone fruit orchards. Some wine table and raisin grapes are being harvested. Finished raisin trays were rolled for pickup. Asian pears, pears, figs, and pomegranates were harvested. Kiwi fruit harvest is beginning. Persimmons continue to gain size and coloring. Citrus packing houses were getting ready for the new navel orange season. Lemons were harvested and packed. Some orange groves were pushed out to make way for new plantings. Apples are being harvested, and the olive harvest is underway. The almond harvest is winding down across the state. Walnut harvest is underway. Pistachio harvest is ongoing. Up in Calusa County, the tomato harvest wound down while the honeydew harvest is ongoing. In Sacramento County, the tomato harvest is in full swing. In San Joaquin County, farmers market vegetables were being harvested and offered for sale. Fall field work and ground prep are done. In Monterey County, the Salinas Valley season wound down with typical fluctuations of cooler and warmer cycles. Production and cultivation were still going strong, and late-season crops are being planted. In Fresno County, jalapenos are being harvested. Carrots are recovering from heat damage. Soil was prepped for planting organic garlic and onions. In Tulare County, tomatoes, sweet corn, okra, cucumber, squash, and peppers are being picked by certified producers. Commercial plantings of yellow squash, eggplant, bell peppers, green chili peppers, and cucumbers are being harvested and shipped domestically. Fall vegetables were planted and developing well. Pumpkins were prepped for harvest. Non-irrigated and foothill rangeland were reported to be in poor to very poor condition. Supplemental feeding of cattle is ongoing. Some cattle were moved down from higher elevation ranges. Well, there are some things that are certain in life. Death, taxes, and weeds. Yes, weeds will always be with us, and controlling weeds is a big part of activities on the farm. And if you're involved in orchards or vineyards, you know the importance of early action when it comes to weed control. We're talking with Paul Walgenbach. He's with Bear Crop Science. And Paul, this is the time to stop weeds before they start, especially if you've just finished up uh, harvesting your tree crops, such as almonds. That's right. The almond harvest is uh, is essentially over right now. Walnuts will be over in, uh, in a few weeks. And guys will immediately start thinking about their uh, winter weed control program. And Allion is really one of the great pre-emergence herbicides that you can use to uh, guarantee good weed control throughout the winter and get up to about six months of, of weed control. Alien is, is a very popular product now, and it, it has an interesting mode of activity by inhibiting cellulose biosynthesis. Now, what does that mean in English? <laughs> well, plants are made up largely of cellulose, and what it basically does, it, it stops this 
the synthesis of cellulose for the plant's diet at a very early age. One thing that is interesting with respect to the mode of action in Allian in particular is that it works on germinating weeds. So as soon as that weed begins to germinate in the soil, that's the window of time within which it works. If you allow weeds to uh, reach the soil surface and begin to emerge, those will not be controlled by Allian. However, we do have a fix for that. Uh, there are such prod there are many tank mix products that you can use that have both uh, soil and uh, post-emergence activity. They don't last as long as Allian, but they are cheap insurance so that you can take care of any early germinating weeds uh, that you may have missed with an Allian application. Those herbicides will take care of you early, and then Allian will do the heavy lifting and take you through for about six months of weed control, sometimes more. And what's important about some of these weeds, they may have sprouted, but they haven't shown their ugly little heads yet above the soil surface. That's correct, and you really can't tell an issue down there scraping with your fingers in the soil. Uh, so it's it's cheap and effective insurance, and it's also good resistance management to put another tank mix partner in there with Allian. And I would think it would have to be some sort of pre- and post-emergent type product. That's correct. There are a number of active ingredients around, such as uh, rim sulfuron-containing products, uh, flazosulfuron-containing products, oxyfluorfin-containing products, and these will do the job uh, early in the season for you. Almond harvest is completed. There may be crews in there doing some pruning right now. And, and that's kind of tricky, isn't it, when you're applying a pre-emergent, but you're having crews come in to do some uh, post-harvest work. What is the, 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 the perfect timing for that? Well, is after those crews have completed their work, uh, that is the time to apply Allian, not necessarily from a safety standpoint because the re-entry interval is just 12 hours. However, we want to keep uh, uh, a weed-free barrier, an Allian barrier. We want to apply to the berms of the crops, whether it be almonds or walnuts or other tree nuts, and keep that barrier there undisturbed through the winter. And one of the keys to excellent weed control with Allian is that you want to have a regimen through the season, a weed control program, that will have your berms clean when you apply the material in early November. Uh, that will allow a thorough coverage of the soil and it will give you a weed uh, a weed control barrier with Allian that will last for months. So if you've got uh, weeds in your on your berms, uh, you're going to have to uh, burn those down and wait until those carcasses begin to decay, uh, which often takes about a month before you can apply Allian. So it's important to use an integrated weed control program whereby you're keeping your berms clean all year round. Is it a broad spectrum control, Allian? Does it control both uh, grass and broadleaf weeds? Yes, Allian has, uh, on average, a greater spectrum of broadleaf and weed control than other materials in his class, other pre-emergence herbicides used, commonly used in trees and vines. And not only does it have a broader spectrum, it also, in general, on average, lasts longer than competitive products. That's why when we brought it into the marketplace, it caught on so rapidly. Is It's just uh, long, effective weed control and great crop safety. I would think, too, that because of its unique chemistry, that it offers uh, control of weeds that may even have uh, glyphosate resistance. 
Yeah, certainly does. This is a, a group 29 material, one of the few uh, active ingredients in that category. And if you have uh, resistant weeds to, uh, to glyphosate, such as the Kaniza species in ryegrass, uh, this will do a fine job for you in, in taking those out. There's no known uh, cross resistance or resistance known with any weeds to Allian. Let's talk a little bit about uh, precautions to take when applying Allian because of its uh, nature. It, it needs water to be activated, but it can't have so much water that it could actually get down to the roots of the plant. Uh, yeah, that's an important aspect. Uh, like most of these pre-emergence herbicides that are used in trees and vines, they have a very broad spectrum. They last a long time, and if they're not used according to the label, they can actually reach some of those roots and do some damage. With Allian, uh, what we ask the growers to do is make sure you have a clean berm, no cracks in the soils. We don't want the stuff to move down through cracks and, uh, and injure roots. And if you've got that, you'll be in fine, fine shape with, uh, with Allian. Another thing I might mention, if you are growing, particularly wine grapes, if you're growing these on steep hillsides where you've cut and filled and you've got different soil types and you've got rocks and gravel, that's an area to stay off of. We do apply the material with success on hillsides, but you have to be very careful when you're on hillsides and make sure you're not applying it into a, into a situation where erosion can commonly occur. Well, since you brought up wine grapes, let's talk about all the crops that Allian okay. is registered uh, for use on. Well, wine grapes present a, a little more challenging problem than, uh, than trees do. Uh, they're finishing up the harvest uh, right about now. It'll go later, actually, up in the Napa Valley. Uh, after that point in time, then these guys will come in and they'll have their pruning operations. And again, it makes it a challenge for any pre-emergence material. You can't get in there early in November like you would like to do. They have to finish those pruning operations first. If they went in and applied early and then took their crews in there, they would break up that herbicide barrier and it would compromise their weed control. So oftentimes uh, these guys are having to apply material in uh, maybe late December, January, February. That doesn't necessarily compromise the control, but at that point in time, I think a tank mix partner becomes more important uh, because of the weeds that have already germinated. And the other thing about Allian and other pre-emergence herbicides is you want them applied during the dormant season. Uh, that's when we get most of our rains. That's why the, when the plants are shut down, there's increased safety. And if you get out to March and April where rains are diminishing, you may not get that timely rain to move the material into the soil and, uh, and have a nice herbicide barrier for yourself. Allian is registered for a wide variety of crops, including citrus, grapes, pome fruit, stone fruit, tree nuts, and olives. And as you pointed out, do your pruning first, get out, and then apply the pre-emergent Allian. That's right, and, and stay out of there. <laughs> What else should we know about Allian? Allian was introduced in about 2011, if I'm correct, during four drought years, and it performed very, very well. Uh, in 2015-16, we had more of a normal year. We were wondering what was going to happen, and things worked out very, very well for us. And then we had our last winter, we had record rainfalls up here in the Sacramento Valley, and it was quite remarkable. The guys who got their materials on early even in areas where you had saturated soils or some flooding or seepage, the weed control and the crop safety was was quite remarkable. So we've had experience now uh, with Allian in some real extremes since it's been in the marketplace here. 
Uh, the other thing that is going to be happening and is happening now is that growers uh, who have used Allian as well as some of our competitors, uh, they will be taking out some orchards and replanting. And it's important for them to know that the plant back for tree nuts in the Sacramento is 24 months. So they have to keep records of what's been applied to their uh, groves so that they can plan ahead to make sure they aren't going to have any plant back problems with new crops. Paul, when it comes to applying any sort of herbicide, it's important to read and follow all label directions. What part of the label would you like growers to pay particular attention to? Well, with all of these pre-emergence materials, because they're broad spectrum and last a long time, they all have a little bit of a longer list of do nots. Uh, one of the things that we do not want growers to do is apply Allian to trees that are stressed or unhealthy. This just is another stress factor that those trees don't need. Another thing with Allian is do not apply to sand soils. Uh, do not apply to soils that have 20% gravel or more. This just opens up channels in the field. And when you are determining whether or not you've got 20% gravel or more, with your testing laboratory, make sure that they are using a USDA number 10 sieve. Anything that stays on top of that sieve uh, is considered gravel. Uh, some laboratories seem to have their own standard, uh, but that is the USDA standard, and that's the one we use uh, for um, uh, for Allian. And um, the other thing I'd like to say is that with grapes in particular, uh, although we've never had a problem, we are very sensitive to the fact that this is such a a, a valuable crop that we may want you to make sure that the greater portion of the root system of grapes is six inches or more below the soil, the surface. Allian will generally tie up and stay in the upper two to four inches, uh, but we want to ensure crop safety in those very expensive wine grapes. Uh, so that's why we, um, uh, that's why we say, uh, Take a look at your grapes to make sure the greater part of the root system is below six inches of the soil and you'll have no problems. Allian, it's longer lasting, up to six months of grass and broadleaf weed control. It's a broad spectrum control. It controls grasses and broadleaf weeds. Its unique chemistry even uh, controls glyphosate resistant weeds. And that allows you, the farmers, to have more profits and allows producers to focus on more profitability and, and less on weeds. Hey, Paul Walgenbach of Bear Crop Science, thanks for telling us all about Allian. Okay, you're very welcome. Coming up on Sunday and Monday, October 29th and 30th in Stockton, the California Small Farm Conference will be held. The site, the Robert Cabral Ag Center at 2101 East Earhart Avenue in Stockton. The California Small Farm Conference is for farmers, market managers, as well as beginning to advance producers who honor a small-scale approach to growing, processing, and marketing their food. Pulling together innovators, family farmers, and experts in environmentally and economically transformative practices, the event is an opportunity to interact with leaders in the field, to network, and to learn about new trends and practices. For more information about the California Small Farm Conference, visit the website californiafarmconference.com. <laughs> We're talking with Dr. Shermaine Hardesty. She serves as the leader of the UC Small Farm Program and as a cooperative extension economist in the Department of Agriculture and Resource Economics at UC Davis. You never heard of the UC Small Farm Program? It is a great resource if you are a small farm. And uh, Shermaine Hardesty, what exactly is a small farm? 
A small farm Fred is a commercial operation that generates between $1,000 and $250,000 of gross annual revenues. So that's not profits, that's gross annual revenues, and that is the official USDA definition. And so that has nothing to do with acreage or the size of the ownership group. That's correct. You could have somebody who's got a greenhouse operation that's less than an acre, and they could be generating that $250,000. Or you could have somebody who's got 25 or even 50 acres of rangeland, and they might not even be up to that $250,000 of gross annual revenues. Now, the Small Farm Program website, which is sfp.ucdavis.edu, does offer a lot for the small farmer. Tell us about some of the programs and information that they can find on that website. Well, it represents our overall uh, whole farm approach. So we're saying that people can't just be great producers of a particular crop. They also have to be legal and uh, law-abiding and that they need to have information on marketing and farm management skills. So we offer the whole uh, collection of subject matter areas. Now, I would think complicating your job is the fact that in that definition of small farms, there are a lot here in California of immigrant farmers who have brought their culture and their crops and introduced them to California agriculture and communicating what you offer to them must be a hurdle. It definitely is a hurdle, and in Fresno, we've been very fortunate because we have a dedicated Southeast Asian uh, person that works with the small farmer, farmers, immigrant farmers there, and also works with a small farm, advi- farm advisor. So we've got the translation and the cross-cultural communication going on. And mostly what's going on with that program in the Fresno area is demonstrations, whether it's showing them a garden or how to wash their hands thoroughly or how to apply a particular herbicide or pesticide. Those types of dem- demonstrations are done because the, um, it's not just a matter of words. It's a matter of showing them how it's done. And besides the ethnic minority farmers, especially those who don't speak English, uh, the small farm program that you offer also contributes to the knowledge base of perhaps farmers with limited resources, hobby farmers, retirement farmers, lifestyle farmers, and perhaps those who just sell through farmers markets. Why don't you talk about each of those groups? Well, yeah, we classify the small farm clientele primarily into three categories. The first we already discussed, the refugee farmers or the immigrant farmers, and that includes Hispanic farmers as well as the Southeast Asian farmers in our particular area. Uh, Then we have what I call, not in a demeaning way at all, the young idealists. These are usually college-educated young folks who are very passionate about farming with uh, sound environmental practices, and they have a lot of energy, and it's... um, they are seem to be a growing population, which is great because the average age of the farmer in California is 58 years old. So we need to, you know, reno, re, rejuvenate our, our stock of farmers, essentially. What exactly is a lifestyle farmer? Well, a 
lifestyle farmer is somebody who often has retired or just prefers to live out in the country and may have a full-time job, and yet they have managed to get on with having a, uh, a farm, relatively small usually, and oftentimes they're either, either operating a farm stand on their farm or they're selling direct at farmer's markets. The other type of farmer we seem to have is oftentimes people come back as a second career to the farm. Often often it's a, a family farm that's been rented out to other people over the years, and um, then the, the person decides, you know, I've had it with the Silicon Valley, and um, they usually have a little, uh, some savings so that they can invest in rejuvenating their farm, upgrading it, and then um, taking on this new career. I was up uh, in the Dunnigan area visiting a farmer like that um, who's been farming now for about the last 10 years after retiring from his first career. Now, you mentioned uh, that a lot of these small farms are contributing to farmers' markets, but something fairly new and exciting is what's called CSAs, Community Supported Agriculture, and I would imagine that the small farm program is involved in that as well. We certainly are. There's a lot of farmers who uh, engage in CSAs, which is basically a, a subscription service. Some Most of these operate CSAs are actually multi-farm operations where there's one farmer taking the lead and other farmers will deliver their products to this other farm and this farm then aggregates the produce and um, delivers to certain collection sites with boxes so that the people can pick up their their produce there on either a weekly or a bi-weekly basis. Now, I would think some people listening to this program may think, hey, I, I could do that, but they don't know where to begin as far as getting established at a farmer's market or, or getting involved with a CSA, and that's where you and the small farm program come in. That's correct. We have the information on our website and also a lot of the farm advisors, University of California Cooperative Extension Advisors, um, provide that information as well at their county offices. Does the small farm program also include agritourism? Definitely does. We have a very dedicated agritourism coordinator. She's strictly grant-funded, and she's just getting out there and doing workshops in various parts of the state and also keeping up a specific website that we have called Cal Ag Tour. It's C-A-L-A-G-T-O-U-R dot org. And any person can go on there and look for listings for types of agritourism operations to visit. And and, and the agritourism operator can go and, and upload their listing onto that website as well. Now, this is a, a growing sector of the agricultural economy, isn't it? Yes, it is. In fact, I wish I could give you the latest numbers. We've just been wrapping up collecting data by by surveying agritourism operators, and we don't have the, the results tabulated yet, but it has been definitely growing in popularity, primarily because there's a lot of citizens out there who want to know more about the food that they eat and see how farming is done. So this is a natural, and also they want their kids to be able to understand more about agriculture. So you'll get the kids going being taken out either in school groups or by their parents, you know, at, at pumpkin time or uh, when there's mazes or the opportunity to pick, you know, yummy ripe strawberries out there in the field. 
Yeah, exactly. What is involved in the definition of agritourism? Is a winery considered agritourism? Yes, it will be if there is a working farm there at, at the site. Then we consider that to be agritourism. So it would encompass a broad range of activities. I mentioned the U-Pick operations. We have the pumpkin patches. We have the corn mazes. We even count farm stands in that definition. We have olive oil tasting facilities as well as wine tasting. Uh, we have classes that are done on drying flowers or cooking with fresh farm produce. So that's just a subsect, a, a small listing of the types of agritourism opportunities we have. And again, uh, this is all part of the small farm program offered by the University of California. The website is sfp.ucdavis.edu if you want more information about uh, all the offerings of the small farm program. And it's not just uh, crops either. It's livestock as well, isn't it? Definitely so, yes. We have, um, you know, people can go and do farm stays or ranch stays and see how the cattle are raised and be able to um, participate in um, going out there and taking care of the animals. Yeah, this is an interesting niche market that has developed over the past few years well, with the reluctancy of a lot of large livestock operations to prohibit visitors and cameras, the smaller ones who are perhaps uh, raising cattle organically that are grass-fed. They want people to come by and see exactly how they treat their animals. Definitely, yes. There's It's a, it's a show-and-tell kind of a uh, venue where you can really see how the, the farming or the ranching is done. And um, then oftentimes, you know, they'll, if, you, if they have a bed and breakfast associated with that, then you get a chance to um, have that bacon or a great steak that you know exactly how that animal was raised. And again, the agritourism website is? CalAgTour.org. All right. All part of the small farm program offered by the University of California. Again, their main website, sfp.ucdavis.edu. And uh, Charmaine Hardesty, the small farm program leader, thanks for spending a few minutes with us and telling us more about uh, the small farm program. Thanks, Fred. Thanks for the opportunity. A while back, in fact, it was during Farm to Fork Week, a commentary ran in the Sacramento Bee. It stated that Sacramento is trying to emulate Silicon Valley and attract high-tech jobs. So how then, this commentary said, is Sacramento branding itself to attract a technologically innovative class of entrepreneurs? What's the identity we're trying to project to the world as America's Farm to Fork capital? At least that's what the huge water tower along I-5 proclaims. The slogan, this commentary says, should be scrapped. Bill Bird is the executive director of the Sacramento County Farm Bureau. And Bill, I imagine you, you would take exception to that comment, in fact, to that entire commentary. Uh, just a tiny bit. It's unfortunate that the Sacramento Bee uh, chose to run this uh article, which was not well-researched at all, I might add, during Farm to Fork Week. We're talking about a Sacramento-based international trade economist who believes what has happened in Santa Clara County and neighboring San Mateo County uh, was a shrewd move and that Sacramento County should be following in the path of what these two counties did many years ago when they took steps to create what we know today as Silicon Valley. What this commentary basically boils down to is Sacramento should not rely so much on promoting agriculture in our county, but instead appeal more to the high tech world. 
Well, let's take a look at the article itself. First of all, I take exception to one of the lines is most measures, this historic transition from farm to factory turned out to be a shrewd move. So let's take a look at that. Now, according to Zillow, Fred, the median price of homes currently listed in Santa Clara County is well over a million bucks. In neighboring San Mateo County, it's even higher, 1.4 million. And we're not talking about a mansion here. We're talking about an average three-bedroom, two-bath, nothing special home. Now, these high prices are largely attributed to the tech industry. Now, if you already own a home in Sacramento County, this is really good news. All of a sudden, your home values are going to go through the roof unless you want to sell that home and move to a larger home, and then it gets a bit tricky. But if you're part of the roughly 45% in Sacramento County that does not own a home or property because you cannot current can't shoulder the current county medium of, of 336,000, which is again according to Zillow, what makes you think you can afford a median of 1.4 million dollars? Now, nearly half the population in San Mateo County, and he doesn't mention this by the way, pays the highest rental costs in the United States of America. And it's another dirty little secret that he fails to mention that most of the low income in those areas have essentially been driven out. And they're here in the valley now because they can't afford to live there. So is that when you really look at it, is that really a shrewd move? You're creating uh, an industry where people can't live. Some people can if you're making two or three million dollars a year. But how many people honestly are making that kind of money? The commentary basically talks about it's time to step away from the world class provincialism that has long constrained Sacramento. Let go of the images of our agricultural past. But isn't agriculture not only part of Sacramento's past, but also its current history and its future history? And I don't think we're constrained by it either. I think uh, if you're a county that relies solely upon agriculture, like Fresno County or Tulare County, that is a problem because the unemployment rates can get kind of high when you're not harvesting a crop. It's not unusual to see an unemployment rate of 15 to 20 percent in Tulare County because it's it's based essentially on one industry, and that's agriculture. In Sacramento County, however, it's diversified. I mean, this most people know Sacramento County is the home of state government. And it's also got a big agriculture footprint. So when you combine those two industries, plus a little bit of tech, because we've got it here, you've got unemployment rates that hover around 3 to 4%. And that's pretty healthy. I mean, is Sacramento County the agricultural powerhouse that Fresno or Tulare counties is? No. I mean, the author is correct that, you know, we produce a fraction of what these other counties um, produce. But fractions are funny things, Fred. They can they can be used to hide certain things like in last year, thanks to the record high price for wine grapes. Uh, Sacramento County uh, growers and producers turned out about five hundred and seven million dollars worth of produce. That's bigger than five states in the United States of America. I don't think it's that minuscule, nor do I think we should start taking action to suddenly pave over some of the richest agricultural production in the world so we can make more software. You can't eat software. And it isn't just growing crops either. Dairy plays a big part in Sacramento County agriculture. The commentary took issue with the locals promoting Sacramento by the use of cowbells. But when it comes to cowbells, uh, it seems kind of natural because of the strength of our dairy industry here. The thing about the, the, the milk producers here, unfortunately, there are not a lot of creameries left in Sacramento County. As a matter of fact, there's just one, and their primary product is almond milk. Nothing wrong with almond milk. 
mind you. But newborns are not drinking almond milk. They're drinking regular milk, but most of the raw milk gets shipped out of Sacramento County, and it gets shipped to creameries in Hillmar and elsewhere. And it's kind of unfortunate. At one time, Sacramento County did have a number of creameries, um, and unfortunately, thanks to some um, misguided legislation that was passed on the state level and some other changes in economics, a lot of that raw milk gets shipped out of the county now, but it does end up as milk that is sold in your local grocery store. Kids drink a lot of milk too, Bill. Well, I'll tell you what, Fred, it's it's this one line that stuck out the most because it demonstrates both a a lack of knowledge and research on behalf of the author. And that line states the following, and what benefits do we derive from our region's cornucopia? Are we more apt to share our nourishing abundance with our least advantage? Now, in raising this point, he is trying to draw the conclusion of, no, we do not share our abundance with the uh, least advantaged. And he happens to be way off the mark because he failed to do some very simple research. All of this information is online. That answer, as a matter of fact, is yes. And I'm going to make a small case in point. We have the largest Bartlett pear and apple producer in Sacramento County, Green and Hemley, located on the Sacramento River Delta. That's about a thousand acres of pears and apples, plus the Hemley family packs for other pear and apple growers in the same Delta region. And they're, they're still packing right now. That, that packing house will not shut down until the end of October. Now, the lady who runs this packing and sorting facility, I know her personally, and she confirmed me the other day that her facility literally ships hundreds of tons of pear and apple products to the manufacturers of baby food, both inside and outside of California. So this family and other Delta pear and apple growers are literally responsible for feeding millions of babies and newborns, and not just in California, but really all over the country. Now, Fred, one nearly has to look at statistics from the CalWORKs program, which is more commonly known as welfare, to discover that the number one client that needs temporary cash assistance in California happens to be young mothers with young children under the age of five. They are number one on the list of those who receive temporary food assistance in California because they need it. Now, take a guess as to whom is helping feed those young children in need of assistance. That answer is Green and Henley. That answer is the other pear and apple growers in the Delta region. They are sharing their abundance with the least advantage. And he didn't take the time, the author of this this op-ed did not take the time to really investigate this. And he got it wrong. I mean, you kind of got to come to the conclusion that he missed a broadside of the barn with that statement and so many others that were in that op-ed. And it's rather unfortunate. It just was not well-researched. It's it's like he fell out of bed and hit his head on the floor. Bill Bird on his soapbox, executive director of the Sacramento County Farm Bureau. Bill, thanks for a few minutes of your time. Brad, I appreciate this. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at kste.com.